Welcome back to Owned and Operated, where we dive deep into the businesses we own, the businesses we are acquiring, and we also bring on guests to talk about their operating struggles. If you like what you hear today, follow John and Brandon on Twitter. That's John at Wilson Companies and Brandon at Brandon Niro. Also, check out our weekly newsletter where we teach you how to be an effective operator. You can sign up by clicking the link in the description of this podcast or by visiting ownedandoperated.com. That's ownedandoperated.com. Check it out. Okay, we are back with Chris Powers. Chris owns and runs Fort Capital, a Fort Worth-based real estate private equity firm with over $600 million in assets under management. Chris started buying houses in 2004 and even found a way to run a profitable real estate flipping business during the housing crisis. Chris lays down his knowledge on this episode. You'll learn everything about growing a real estate private equity firm from the ground up into a huge business with over half a billion dollars in assets under management. Enjoy this episode. If you listen to our show, you know that we can spend months sourcing businesses, talking with them, negotiating LOIs, conducting due diligence, all for a deal to fall through at the finish line. Microacquire solves that whole problem, whether you're buying or selling a business. As a seller, you're getting introduced to over 50,000 trusted buyers with total anonymity. As a buyer, you get to sort through profitable, vetted sellers and close in 30 days. We don't own any digital businesses yet, but over the next year, we're intending to grab a couple, and Microacquire is going to be our choice for a sourcing platform. All right, welcome back to Owned and Operated. I'm John. I'm Brandon. All right. Sweet, Brandon. If you like what we're doing, give us a five-star rating on Wherever it is that you listen to podcasts, I have not checked our ratings in a while, so I hope it's improving. And check out our website, ownedandoperated.com, and follow Brandon and I on Twitter. It's at Wilson Companies and at Brandon Iroh. So today we have Chris Powers with us. Everyone knows who Chris Powers is. We're really excited to have him on. Chris, welcome. And how about you give us a 60-second little intro to remind the listener? Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I'm a fan. I've listened to a couple leading into this. Chris Powers from Fort Worth, Texas. I own and operate a company called Fort Capital, which is basically a real estate private equity firm that buys industrial buildings all over Texas. I started the company when I was 17 years old at college, TCU, buying rental properties back in 2004. And the last 17 years have been building this business. And so today we have just under a half a billion dollars of Properties under management, almost 5 million square feet of industrial, have a wonderful team of 27 people. I'm married and I have two daughters, a four-year-old and a one-year-old. Yeah, things are pretty good. And I have a podcast called The Fort Podcast. So, Which is awesome. It's great to, to be here. Out. Yeah. I appreciate it. Yeah. I mean, there's so much to cover there. I think the coolest part is that you are super young. <laughs> so, so there's a lot going on and you're a young guy. That's cool. Yeah, I'm 34. Yeah, that's cool. All right. So you started at 17. Can you give us a little bit of background and how it started off? Yeah, so I was kind of trivial. So I grew up, I think just like an important moment in my life was my dad was an attorney for 13 years as a partner and, and made partner. And at 37, he came home and he told my mom, hey, I'm going to become a doctor. And so at 37 years old, he quit. He went back to UTEP and got his pre-med or his biology credit so that he could apply for medical school. And so when I was seven years old, we moved to Lubbock for him to start medical school. And I really say that just to say, had had kind of a, a good upbringing, very great upbringing. And then we kind of, not spiritually or like family wise, but financially took a really big step backwards in life. We went from, you know, a salary and partner to nothing. And so I use that and saw a lot that happened at a young age to just kind of fuel the entrepreneurial side and was always like selling golf clubs on eBay, was mowing lawns, doing stuff like that, and then went to TCU and was on partial scholarship there. And TCU was an incredible experience, but I I didn't have a ton of money and I wanted to be able to like hang out with 
people that were doing cool stuff and go on spring break and stuff like that. And so I was really fortunate to meet a guy my freshman year. And so this was 2004 that had been buying rental houses and he had won an entrepreneur of the year award. And he was basically like, Hey, I can teach you how to buy houses with no money down and no credit. And this is kind of what was going on in that period of time before the great financial crisis. And so first semester freshman year, I read a couple books, went and got a loan, bought a house with no money down, refinanced it six months later, pulled out $30,000 worth of cash and kind of the rest is history. I kept buying rental properties, started a management company in college, started rentbytcu.com, which again, back then, like nobody was just finding their houses online. So I just had this idea of basically going to all the landlords around campus and saying like, Hey, just put it on my, you know, rent by TCU site and I'll help you lease your properties for more. And, you know, that's the short story of kind of how it all got started. And, you know, like I said earlier, 17 years later, here we are. Yeah. So I want to pick that apart a little bit. How old was the mentor? Was he like another young guy, like a couple years ahead of you or was he like a father figure type? He was one year older than me. Okay. So he was right there. It's a guy named Adam Blake and right. he is still a great friend of mine, very successful entrepreneur in his own right. I actually talked to him last week and yeah, so he was, I have a mentor that's much, much older, but it was really cool to see somebody like that. That was a year older. It made it a lot more believable that I could do it. You know, if, if a 50 year old man had come up to me and said like, Hey, you could buy rental properties. It's like, yeah, I probably could. But when you're wa- looking at somebody that's a year older than you doing it and winning awards, you're like, okay, this is actually very achievable. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's cool. <laughs> like that is, yeah, that's cool. <laughs> so how many properties did you buy before we sort of, there was a pivot in that conversation that sort of got like brushed over, but you start, you bought a property or two and then you quickly pivoted to sort of a pseudo management where you were filling other people's units for them? So I bought 12 units throughout college, 12 properties throughout college. But because of that, I was managing my own. And then what happens in a lot of student real estate is like a parents will buy their kids a house, kids will graduate, but they don't want to sell the house. So I was always kind of managing rental properties for students that may have graduated or left. And then because I was leasing all my own properties, I just kind of turned it into a leasing business as well. So it's kind of this full service deal. I would hire TCU students during the summer to lease, but the genesis of it was buying my own properties and kind of building off of that. Yeah. Okay. How many properties do you think you had under management at that time? I mean, you you were like 21 or can you? Yeah. So I graduated high school a year early. Not because I was a smart genius, actually, because I was a dumb idiot and was a rebellious to my parents and said, I'm leaving high school early if you, you know, ground me or do, you know, discipline me, which is what I needed. <laughs> but your question is, how many properties was I manning? Probably like 50 or 55 units when it was, I say units, single family homes or duplexes when it was all said and done. I didn't do any apartment management, just kind of single family home and duplex. And then, because it's student housing, I feel like I've usually seen that rented out by the bedroom. Was that how that was? There are people that do that, but no, when you do it that way, it's just more people to that are, you need to be accountable for. So we would have everybody sign one lease. That way, if like one roommate was late rent, like I didn't have to get on them, their roommates would get on them because if one roommate was rent or if one roommate was late, they were all late. And then usually parents would guarantee the leases. Yeah. Okay. So how'd you charge that as far as like to the, to the homeowners that you were renting on their behalf for? So the, like the, the manager, like how was I charging as, as a manager to an owner? Yeah. It was anywhere from seven to 10% of gross revenue. So seven to 10% of whatever that they were pulling in every month. And then that was kind of a base fee. And then when there was maintenance and things like that, there would be like a 10% markup on just basically like general contracting work. But if we had to do repairs or if it was just like an hourly thing where somebody was just coming over to fix a clogged sink, you know, it'd be some type of markup. So yeah, those so were kind like of the, the base ways. And then, and then leasing a home, you get anywhere from like half a month's rent to a full month's rent as a commission to lease it. All right. So yeah, I, that was a good question. I was thinking that because of your age, it would be like undercharged, but that sounds like perfect property management fee structure. I think we pay a half a month to fill and 8% for our residential units right now. So did your mentor help yeah. figure out that fee structure to sort of get you off the ground or did you just do some research or who'd you talk to? It's a good question. I think I'd probably just ask some people. 
I can't really remember. It just kind of happened. I think I, I knew the leasing model pretty quickly, the half a month or one month rent. On the management side, yeah, I think I probably just asked a few people and they were like, this sounds good. And I was like, okay, that sounds good. <laughs> cool. <laughs> All right. So you you started managing other people's properties and then you're dealing with single family homes and now you have 5 million square foot of industrial. <laughs> so what happened in in about 12 years? Our 12 single family properties grew up and they grew into these <laughs> nice crazy. industrial buildings. I hope mine do that. <laughs> so I graduated. I won't go through the whole, like, we'll get to, I'll skip a lot of this, but so throughout college, there was never this grand plan to like build this real estate company. Love doing it. But if you had asked me maybe my junior year of college, what I was going to do, and this was 07, I was like, I'll probably go to Wall Street and be an investment banker. Or I'm going to move to Silicon Valley and get into tech. It was like one of those two things. And I remember it was, you know, college the whole time was like the job market's great. And then I graduated in December of 08. So in the pits of like the lowest of the low. And so there were no jobs. And just before, just before I graduated, I got in a line of credit and this is probably the best thing that kind of moved me forward into my next phase of my career. I used that plus some cash that I raised to start buying foreclosed houses around Fort Worth. We went from a rental student rental model to a buy distressed properties, either from banks or from the courthouse steps, fix them up and flip them. So the typical deal was like something that had sold in 07 for 129.9 or 139.9 little brick 3.2. We would buy it for, we were buying them for 30, 40 grand a year later. We would put lipstick on them and the goal is to sell them for 99.9 or 89.9. So create like a little 20, 30,000 dollar margin. Like at that time? Too much or in a few At years. that time. Okay. All right. So you felt like you could flip at that time. Yeah. Like we could spend a whole podcast on why, like how I would have done that differently this time around with what I know now. I mean, the best thing I could have done was just like hold them, rent them. And I think they're now worth like 250 or 300 grand, but I was flipping them and it was, you know, there was the, the people I was flipping them to were also the people having the hardest time getting financing at that time. So it was just a, look, I learned a lot and it set me up, but so long story short, really from there on, it just became, okay, this is like my career. And I never really looked back. It was never, you know, I never looked for a job. I never, it just kind of kept putting one foot in front of the other met a builder along the way that taught me how to build. And I developed and built for seven, eight years. And then in 2016, you know, we had built the team, but we were just kind of a deal shop, just kind of doing deals, all different asset types, you know, nothing was like consistent. We did well, but what we started running into was if we were going to really grow a team and hire really talented people and scale, like we had to focus on something, get really, really good at it. Because what happens when you're raising capital and you walk in and you say, Hey, you know, I need to raise 5 million bucks for this townhome development that we're doing. Real smart equity starts going, well, that's cool. We'd love to give it to you. It looks like a great project, but it looks like in your portfolio, you have a office building, a land deal, how do we know you're going to wake up tomorrow and care about townhomes and not, you know, the next apartment deal? We'd rather give 5 million to the person that's only doing townhomes every day. And that started coming up more and more. And then on the recruiting side, same thing. People, when you want to hire really good talent, you need to show them a vision and like a pathway to success. And at that time, our story was, you know, we were just hustling deals in Fort Worth and blah, blah, blah. But to really build a scalable company, people wanted a, a direct vision and kind of see the pathway there. And so that's a long way of saying in 2016, we said, okay, we need to pick one thing and get really good at it. And we'll be able to raise more capital and hire better people if we do that. And it's kind of like the flywheel effect from good to great by Jim Collins. But it's what we did. And we chose class B industrial buildings at the time. They, for a lot of reasons, which happy to go into if you care, but we just said, it makes a lot of sense. We think we can do a lot of this stuff. Nobody's really doing it right now. And we were really shocked that not a lot of people were doing it. And I would say our company really grew up in 2016 when we started focusing on one thing. And five years later, you know, we've grown the team to 27 people. We have a full leadership team and executive team. I mean, we can raise, I can't raise, I can raise as much money as I would like, honestly. Great with lenders and people know us for something now. 
one of the craziest things is when you work your ass off and, and even your closest friends and family can't quite tell you what you do. That's a really bad thing. You should be known for something early on in your career. And at the time it was like, well, Chris is in real estate, but they didn't know if I was a developer, if I liked multi So nobody knew what to send me or what to do with me because they just didn't know what my thing was. Now everybody knows what we do and it's easy to say no to a lot of stuff. It's easy to say, we know what to say yes to and what to say no to. And because people, we have a brand and a reputation now of doing kind of one thing, it's paid itself in spades. doesn't mean we can't do more stuff in the future, but I think to really get going and build, you got to be known for something early on. So I want to backpedal real quick, just because this is an entrepreneurial question. I know. So many questions. (laughs) So many questions. (laughs) So from the very beginning, when you made your first, I guess the second pivot actually, how or what was the thought or the entrepreneur, entrepreneurship behind it when you moved from college to you're in the middle of the housing crash, obviously, and then you started flipping. You know, was that just yeah. sought opportunity or did that, that housing crash also affect rental abilities in the college market? So thank God my rentals, I never missed a rent payment from tenants, but that's because again, student housing at TCU, which has a predominantly very kind of wealthy, it's a private university, a lot of people that are can easily pay. And so that kind of took care of itself. But I mean, it was so crazy, man. Like I lived through it, but I was 21 years old. I graduated when I was 21. I didn't really understand what the hell was going on. I mean, hell, when I refinanced my first property, I thought I was making profit. I didn't realize I was just taking on more debt. You know, you just kind of learn at these things. But I guess the long way to answer your question is, yeah, there was this huge opportunity. There was stuff selling for 20 cents on the dollar that in a matter of 12 months, And so really just looked around, kept talking to people. It's like, what should I do? And people were like, well, it would be nice if you had cash, you could buy some of these. And I was like, well, I have a line of credit. And I did that. And then I went and raised from a much, my mentor that was much older that I kind of discussed. And he gave me, I had 250, he gave me another 250. And we started just buying houses and I didn't really have a strategy. I was just like, I'm going to buy these cheap. I'm going to fix them up and I'm going to try and resell them. And like it was just kind of serendipitous. Like I, it was no grand plan. It was just keep chopping wood and wake up every day and figure out how to make the next buck. 250 in a line of credit in 2008. I feel like we all need to agree that that's insane. (laughs) It was amazing. So I got it right before the crash. Wells Fargo gave it to me, which I've never used Wells Fargo since because they're tough to deal with. But I would say if there's one thing, it it set me up amazing. And they kind of told me, look, we're not going to take the line of credit back as long as you don't miss a payment. But if you miss like one payment, it's all over. And I didn't. And I don't know what I would have done if I hadn't had that. Again, it's kind of one of those lucky things. I actually got it to buy more rental properties at TCU. What I ended up using it for was something totally different. That's fascinating. All right. I want to dive a little bit further then into sort of 2016. You were hustling for deals. How big was the team? Pre-focus. Yeah. 2016, we were probably... I don't know, eight, nine, 10, maybe at the most. So what did the portfolio look like at that time? So I tell people I'm a recovering developer. So I developed for a long time. I built houses, I developed land, I developed student housing, I built office buildings. And so the team at that time was very kind of development oriented and driven. So we had townhome projects going on. So it's kind of very construction heavy very kind of project management heavy. We were not in the like buy a deal, add value to it through leases and then manage it mode. We were like, we were truly kind of urban infill developers. So several people on the team have been able to kind of pivot and use their skill sets to what we're doing now. And some people left. And so that's kind of where the company was in 2016. We and, we, and I really made the decision to stop developing, which I'm ha- like, this is an operational podcast. Yeah, I was, developing that was my is unbe- <laughs> like, why? Yeah, developing is unbelievably hard. You'll have somebody on here that loves development. There's plenty of guys on Twitter that are amazing at it and kudos to them. I just never enjoyed it. It's fraught with a lot of risk that you can't control. It is, you know, I could go through a million reasons. Like from an operational standpoint, we had a deal once that, Literally, we were supposed to pour concrete one day. The concrete company was like, hey, so sorry, we're coming tomorrow. It rained for the next like 32 days straight. 
And it was like almost 90 days until they could pour the slab again. Between that, backlogs of work, and you miss 90 days of work and you have, you know, if you have pre, it's, there's all the subs that were behind them had to reschedule prices went up. If we took something more recent, like what's gone on with lumber, you know, people bid that project out, you know, two years ago, well, they're finally getting to, okay, it's time to go vertical and lumber's, you know, 400% more than it was and their projects bust. So there's reasons you take those risks. There's supposed to be more reward, but there, it's hard to build scale and like really get going, especially when you're young and kind of a smaller company. And so we felt it wasn't the life I wanted to live. Again, I'm not like knocking development. It's just not for me. We felt like we could move a lot quicker, build a better company quicker by buying existing buildings. And a lot of that came from reading a lot from Sam Zell that said, look, I love real estate when I know what I'm paying for it. That's like, I solve number one is what am I paying? Because when you buy an existing building, like, you know, day one, what your cost is and what do I need to lease it for? And how much is it going to cost me to lease that property for that much? And when those are the two kind of, there's obviously nuance to that. There's more, it's not easy to come to those two numbers. You have to have experience and everything, but you're solving for a lot less other than when you take a new ground up development those deals take three or four years. By the time you finish that building, so often like your basis is way different than you thought. The market's changed. So it's just a different life. And it's not the one I wanted to build the company on. So we got out of it. And I can go a lot more into detail about how tough development is from an operational standpoint, but that was the genesis of how we made that decision. I'd be curious about like the actual pivot itself. Like what did that look like? I mean, you took a yeah. you sat them down. Was it a gradual thing? We've had to pivot out of service lines that don't make sense for us. But fortunately, we're able to pivot, like you said, some, some of the team is able to move on and some of, some of the team just doesn't. But it, we've always done it gradually and not really like a, hey, we're stopping. Yeah. But in real estate, so, it's transactional. So it's, it's sort of like a day, just sort of do the next thing. <laughs> so what happened was... My partner, who's now the CEO of the company, I am now the executive chairman and founder, but I came to him. We, we started having the, the questions of like, how are we going to grow this thing? How are we going to become singular focused? What do we want to do? And we probably spent a year kicking tires and talking about what that would be. I was very vocal that I wanted to get out of development to him, not to the whole team yet. And, but when you're in development, these projects take, like I said, two, three, four years. So even making the decision in 2016, what really happened then was the team was aware that every new deal coming into the company would be an industrial building that we bought. But at the same time, these, these developments we had going on, it's not like they just ended because I made that decision. We probably didn't finish our last building till the end of 2018. So all we made the decision to do was we're not doing any more of this new stuff or any more of this development. We're just going to let that slowly kind of fade out. And then everything we are going to focus everything going forward on is this new strategy. And by the end of 2018, we finished our last buildings. We also made a concerted effort to sell out what we called our non-core portfolio, which was our not industrial properties. And we began selling things that didn't fit our core model. And I think I don't know the exact date, but kind of early 2019, mid to 2019, we pretty much were 95% of attention was on industrial, 5% was still on legacy stuff. And as we sit here today, I think we have two or three more properties to sell before we're, you know, our whole portfolio is more homogenous. And those are three multifamily deals we developed in 2016 that we just hang, hung on to and they're actually under contract right now to sell. And then we'll be totally clean of just owning class B industrial and industrial flex properties. So I agree with like, I mean, everything. And I think it took a lot of courage and I, I think that's just awesome to do what you guys did. I guess my big question is what happens at a billion or 2 billion or whatever you think the cap on class B industrial is. And you're like, Hey, I think we're ready to add a new service line. Like how do you productively divert that focus? So it's a great question. What you have is two expertises in a company like this, and really in a company like what you're doing, where you're buying and operating these companies in somewhat of a hold co-structure as well. But what we have is a backbone of 
real estate is as much as we like to talk about the buildings and the, the leases and the fun stuff, it's a lot of admin work. There's a core trunk to the company that could work on really any asset type. They don't really care. There's only certain people that are so snitchy in that industrial side. Those are the people bringing in deals, underwriting deals, financing deals. But like our accounting team doesn't care if they're accounting a industrial building or an office building or they, they don't care. So the way I think about it long-term, and I think the difference this time will be if we get to the point where we think industrials kind of hit its peak, which I don't think that's happening anytime soon. So I'm not worried about it now. What we do think about long-term is, okay, we, we need to have the core of the company to where what we would do going forward is rather than take all these people that have been working in the, that were really needed to be industrial experts and say, Hey, we're going to do multifamily now, learn multifamily. We will have the team and the ability to go out to the market and say, Hey, we want to get into class B multifamily renovations. We'll go hire the three best people we know to like start that team and then leverage off our backbone, which is the constant, which is the admin work, the accounting work, the finance work, kind of the more mundane asset agnostic type of job. The other part is we have, we raise money from over 800 people right now. A lot of times I think in our next phase of our company is the goal to go find a new strategy to invest in from an asset type perspective, or is the goal to maybe add an arm where we become equity providers to other people. And rather than have to just be the smartest guy in the room about what asset to be in and say, we'll invest across these five asset classes. We want to meet the best operators in each one. And we'll just pick and choose which deals to do, which will be interesting for us because we will have been operators for 20 something years at that point. Like I know the struggles of the people of my peers I know them so intimately. I hear things on Twitter. I talk to people. It like hits me at my soul. But a lot of business in general, I think we can all agree on this, is very homogenous. Like at your companies, you guys have accountants. Like there's so much of my business that probably mirrors your business. It's these few folks that have to be really specialized. But if your core is really good, you can kind of do a lot. Now that might say, well, you just said you wanted to be really focused on one thing. Well, you have to be really focused to be known for something and to build something great. For for Apple, it was build a good Macintosh. But once you've done something really good, you can then start adding into the company without it, people being overwhelmed or feeling like they have no vision. That comes later. I think my biggest struggle early on was I wanted it all right now. And now I realize like, no, let's go build a phenomenal business for a decade. And then we will have more options on how we kind of add on to this business. All right. Yeah. That, I mean, that was a good answer. That was good. <laughs> like I get it. <laughs> Our business runs a lot like that where we have, we see it the same way. As long as the home service companies, like that's sort of our industrial class B is home service within yeah. three niches that we feel like we can knock out of the park because our model fits it. But then we have a shared services model, which it sounds like what you're describing that is sort of, you know, can handle any, the business of doing business and then specialists and yeah. each one. So that's cool. So on the equity side of thing, you think that will be the next iteration of Ford Capital or or potentially that you guys will just become capital allocators? I certainly have been vocal that I would like to see it go that way. We actually have a lot of people that reach out to us constantly because our name is Ford Capital, thinking that we are capital providers. I know how hard it is to build these companies. There might be an asset class we get into. There's nothing out there that excites me more than what we're doing right now. And I'm not trying to be kind of biased. It just is how I feel. Could be wrong, but that's how I feel. Can we dive into why? Like why class yeah, B so, like what, why that? Why is that what you landed on? So I'll go through kind of a, a list of reasons, but one is you cannot rebuild this stuff. So it's supply constrained and you can't rebuild it because one, well, let me take one step back. In the major cities that we invest in, you can't rebuild it. One, you can't find land that large in like the middle of Dallas. That's You could just go build some industrial property on. Two, replacement costs, the cost to construct inhibit it. Three, even if you could find those things, a reasonable size land and replacement cost made sense, you're typically finding cities that are not wanting the last 20 acre parcel in town to go industrial. It's typically zoned for higher and better use. And so governments, city councils are not just jumping over with joy to approve another industrial building. So supply constrained, 
In fact, we estimate that one to 2% of the supply is actually being taken out of the market each year. So if you go to any major city in the country right now and you go look at these revitalized urban districts that are being created, it's almost all old industrial parks. So buildings are either being torn down or they're being repurposed into like a restaurant or some type of retail hybrid. Okay, so you have supply constraint and actually depleting supply. Then on the tenant side, you have the emergence of this whole new generation of tenants driven through e-commerce and the web. And then you guys can speak to some of this in these growing cities, all of the contractors and engineers and, and material providers, they occupy my buildings. So as these cities are growing, the direct benefit is there's more tenants that are growing and they, they inhabit these buildings. So not only do I have a legacy generation of tenants that are growing with these cities, I have this whole new generation of online tenants that are starting to come into the buildings. And the really cool thing is, you know, let's just say your business does really well. Maybe one day you're going to move out of this office and you're going to be in the nicest office building in Ohio, you know, class A office building. Or let's say you've been living in a class B apartment and you you knock it out of the park and you either leave and you go move a class A office building or a class A apartment, or maybe you go buy a home. In both of those situations, you left an asset class. You left class B for class A in office, but in class B industrial, if your business gets better, you do not move to a class A industrial facility. A class A industrial facility is big distribution, bulk warehouse for the Amazons of the world, the much bigger tenants. And our tenants don't use industrial as a function of their business, not a, you know, the CEO needs a platinum toilet. So we're going to move into a class A industrial building. So what you find is that tenants actually expand within the asset class rather than leave it. The better they do, the more space they take up. They don't leave it for class A. There is no reason to go to class A. So that's another reason. CapEx, you buy these buildings and you you redo the roof. Maybe you paint the buildings, stripe the parking lots, maybe do a little signage, maybe a little landscaping. Very predictable CapEx that tenants are overjoyed with. You go talk to these class A office building owners and they are getting killed on TI because the CEO needs a platinum toilet that they didn't underwrite. You know, the tenants are bitching that there's not a Picasso in the lobby with all the marble and fountains. It's just this outpouring of, of CapEx dollars, not what we do. It's very predictable. And then on the inside of the suite where it's 10 to 20% office, it's like paint carpet and some sheetrock. I mean, you guys have probably occupied one of these buildings and they're overjoyed. So you have these like humble tenants that don't need a lot. And when you paint the building, they're just like jumping with joy. And on the flip side, you go deal with these tenants in these major buildings that are pissed off that you didn't buff the marble that morning. And they slipped on the way to the Starbucks station in the lobby. It's just a whole different a like, type of management. You got some opinions on class A, man. <laughs> well, it's true. No, it is. I like it. It was good. <laughs> I, I have tons of friends that, that own this stuff. And look, I'm not saying that their stuff isn't profitable. I'm not saying they're not, it's not a profitable thing. It's just what kind of life that I want to live. So they're easier to manage. And the last thing, and I could, I could keep going, but the last mile matters. You're a home services company. How close you can be to your clients matters. For e-commerce and these online businesses, it matters tremendously. And so where do you find industrial buildings that are truly last mile to mature neighborhoods with lots of rooftops? Oh, it's the buildings that were built in the 70s, 80s, 90s when the cities were much smaller, that's what we buy. So we truly offer that last mile touch point, which I truly believe as technology improves and as we get better at logistics and supply chains, every inch matters as you're getting closer to the customer. And we, our buildings are right there to service that need. So those are kind of some five kind of high points why it made sense to us. I'll give one more. I think this one's actually important. It's a very fragmented market, typically owned by non-professional real estate investors. The deal sizes have typically been too small. It's not sexy, which by nature just gets rid of a lot of people. And it's just been neglected. Now it's the hottest thing on the planet, but it's still super fragmented. I think 80% of class B industrial buildings are still owned by like the electrical distribution company that built a business park in town 30 years ago, or kind of mom and pop smaller businesses. 
it's being institutionalized in real time, but there's still a lot of room to go. And because most deal sizes are five to call it 50 million on a one-off transaction basis, institutions just can't spend the time to buy those smaller deals. It's not worth the squeeze. But I will say, if you go buy five of those deals and put them all together and offer them as a $100 million portfolio, they'll eat it up. And so there's a lot of opportunity just in aggregating to create value. Sorry, you asked. I gave you the full, gave I loved you the full it. answer. Yeah, that was awesome. Yeah. You had mentioned earlier about, I'll call it like the urbanization of these, these class B warehouses, right? Where they're going from either abandoned or worn down areas and they're modernizing them, bringing in all these restaurants and, and different uses that you wouldn't see previously. Do you see that as an opportunity or a potential threat to your business? I see it as an opportunity because I'm speaking to y'all because you own these type of businesses. You still need the warehouse. They can go create all the restaurants they want and tear down tons of buildings, but that didn't change your demand for the warehouse. So the more supply that's taken out of the grid, it, it helps me in two ways. One, it leaves less vacancy and less supply for tenants to go leave my buildings and go rent. It get, sorry, guys, but it gives me the opportunity to raise rents more because there is nowhere for you to go. And third, <laughs> and third, if I ever want to sell these buildings to one of those groups doing a higher and better use play, it ups my value, not just based on my rent roll and what tenants are leasing for. Now my property might be worth land value or they're valuing it on totally different metrics than traditional. So I would say the more buildings that get taken out of the system, I love it. I wish more would come out every day. Reminds me, this brings up a couple things, but one, it reminds me of the mobile home park. That was like all the rage. It's in almost like identical. And it was, a lot of it was like the same discussion. It was like, can't build them anymore because nobody lets you. And, yep. you know, one or 2% sort of fall off a year for whatever reason and really fragmented. <laughs> so you asked the question, like, if I had to do another asset type, that's the one that's most top of mind to me for those exact same core fundamental reasons. The really tough thing about mobile home parks is even in industrial, you can still, like we're doing a $70 million deal right now. We're under contract to buy a big deal. It's really hard to find a, a big mobile home park. They all trade in that couple million to $4 million, $5 million range. There's bigger ones, but it's really hard to do that at scale. You have to be like a REIT that's willing to buy these massive portfolios of them. So won't cut you off, but the same fundamentals exist in mobile home parks. And, and I would get in that if I, if there was a way to do it and scale it into something big. Yeah. So, I mean, that brings up minimum deal size. So what, what's minimum deal size for you guys? We say 5 million now. We'll do something a little bit less if it's adjacent to something we own or it makes sense. We wouldn't go into like a new city that we haven't bought in before and buy like a $2 million deal. But if we own something in a business park and we can pick up the building next door for three or four million bucks and it kind of all works together and we can share resources, we would do something smaller than five million. I'd say the majority of what we do is in the 10 to $25 million range. Obviously, I just said we're doing something much bigger than that, but our fastball is at 10 to $25 million deal size. We had this realization earlier this year too about sort of what deal size we should be targeting. But for the listener, I think the average person probably does not understand, like, why would you not attack those small deals? Because they're cheap or easy or whatever. So can you give like a primer on why 5 million is the minimum and why it doesn't make sense underneath that? Yeah. So at a high level, like if I was a one-man band, I'd do a $2 million deal all day long. But when you build a team, you have mouths to feed. And let's just say you're getting a 1% acquisition fee. I'm just like throwing something out. So you do that on a $3 million deal, that's a $30,000 fee. You do that on a $10 million deal, that's a $100,000 fee. The work is the same amount of work. There is not more work to buy something that's 10 versus something that's three, relatively speaking, maybe a couple more hours here and there. So one, you can build a bigger team when you do bigger deals. The second is the larger the deal, the more, because it's larger, you know, the smartest lawyers in the world want to work on big deals. They don't want to work on a million dollar deal. The best brokers in the world don't want to work on a million dollar deal. They want to work on a $10 million deal or a hundred million dollar deal. The best property managers in the world don't want to manage some dumpy $1 million building on the other side of town. They want to manage a hundred million dollar badass business park in the, 
the level of talent that is working on those deals is why they're, they, they actually, they say big deals take less time than small deals. It's true because the people at the table, the, the best lenders want to lend on a hundred million dollar portfolio, not a million dollar deal. And that's not, let me just sit here and say, when I'm saying best, I'm not saying that because you're doing $1 million, you're worst. I'm just saying talent keeps leveling up. And so there's a lot more people wanting to work in that space, which obviously leaves a lot of opportunity at the $1 million price point. But it's a, you can't build a big company buying $1 million deals. You just like, you can't do it. And so you get better as economies of scale. You, just typically the type of talent that wants to work, wants to work on bigger things, more ambitious things. You know, there's more money to go around to pay people the, the bigger you work. And so that's a high level why. I could get really into the nuance of, of why, but that's the framework for why. Now, now naysayers would say, well, the bigger deals have less return. Okay, fair enough. But my answer to that is always, look, all Blackstone wants is a 10 to 12% return. They're not asking for 30, 40% returns. They're tickled pink for 12%. So you could sit here and tell me all day long that your million dollar deal generated a 30% return and your investors are really happy. Well, guess what? Blackstone was just as happy to get 12. Who's One's not more right than the other. I think what people get trapped with is it's easy to make bigger returns on smaller deals. It just is. It's the law of numbers. Warren Buffett will never generate a double investing 20 billion at a time. But guess what? The people that have been chosen to invest in that are just as happy with that return as the smaller guy that put 10K into a deal and made 30%. And so you see this a lot on Twitter and you see it a lot as, well, my returns at a smaller deal size are better. It's like, true, but it doesn't mean your investors are any more satisfied than the investors making 12% on larger deals. So that's a long way to say it makes sense to level up. And I wouldn't compare, especially in our business, not doing it because you can make better returns staying small. It's, it's two, you're, you're playing two different games. Yeah. I, I always liked the idea that real dollars matters. Like, you know, a hundred yeah. billion dollar in revenue company making one or 2% it is still making one or 2 billion <laughs> versus, you know, a $10 million company making like 50% or something like it real dollars matter. Yeah. I, I get that. And I like that. A well, lot. it's like the easiest way we can describe it to listeners Go to your local grocery store and go buy a 12-pack of Coca-Cola. You're probably spending like 50 cents a can. Then go to the local ballpark and sell them all for a dollar a piece and double your money. You can double your money in a day. So you took three bucks to buy a 12-pack and you, or you took six bucks to buy a 12-pack, you doubled. Okay, but now you got it. Now I say, okay, but now go do that and sell a billion cans of Coca-Cola. Well, we got to have an accounting department and a sales team and marketing. You can't do it. So you could never double in a day, but who's better? The guy that sold 12 cans for $12 or the guy that's selling a billion cans a day? I'm not saying one's better than the other. I'm just saying pick your game. Yeah, we had a deal size revelation earlier this year because we started targeting these small deals because that's historically what we've always done. And then we... We yeah. talked to about four or five of them and we're like, oh, this doesn't make sense. <laughs> like we, this, is, this is a waste of our time. <laughs> so then, yeah. we, then we moved up the food chain. So when do you guys, what's the next step in the food chain for you guys? Like what's it look like? So we'll buy anywhere from 200 to $250 million of new property this year. And we'll sell about a hundred to 125 million this year. Our goal is to keep spreading out across Texas. So we're focused on two things, class B industrial and, and major Texas markets. We think we have a three to four year. I think it's silly to even say three to four year, but there's nothing on the horizon that tells me that what we're doing is not fundamentally sound. Besides some macro event, you know, people are moving here, jobs are moving here. There's still none of this stuff being built. It hasn't become affordable to build. All the right fundamentals are still in place. And so I think our goal is to try and get to a billion of assets in the next three years. We, we don't really measure the company anymore based on AUM because we're sellers. I think that's better to do if you never sell anything. But, you know, we would have been a billion dollar company probably next year had we not ever sold anything. But we, we are sellers. A lot of people hold for forever. We are not that. We kind of follow more the Blackstone model, which is buy it, fix it, sell it. And we sell in three to five year windows. Sometimes we go longer. But I think that the next steps for us are 
maybe adding a contrary to what I just said, maybe a long-term fund that's more permanent capital that really is buying properties that you can hold generationally. And also kind of really dialing in, do we want to become capital providers as well as capital consumers? Can you talk about why you use the, why the selling model instead of the getting rid of the focus component? Like you sell the industrials as well, or like that is the plan? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So a couple of reasons. One, I mean, the market's moved a lot. Like we're selling stuff that on a five-year performa we're hitting in a year. Look, you can sit here and say like, yeah, you pay taxes. Look, paying taxes isn't the worst thing that ever happened to us. Do I like paying them? No. But I think early on in a career, unless you've been given millions of dollars, it makes sense to sell, take chips off the table and reinvest those dollars. And so, you know, for us, the the great thing about a business like what you have and what I have, it's one thing if you sell a building and you're not like, maybe you inherited a building from a family member and you have no other way of like, you're not in the real estate business. Like you're going to get all this cash and you're going to be like, what am I going to do with it? I have a problem. I have the opposite problem. I have way too many options of where to put cash. So if I'm selling something, cash isn't sitting idle and I'm also getting to reinvest it in a place that I control with a professional team. So for me, it's like, you know, I won't get into specific numbers, but I would just say like taking a lot of chips off the table the last couple of years, I'm more liquid than I've ever been. One, that feels good. I can kind of go to sleep at night. Two, if we do have a a rainy day, I'm going to be liquid and be able to buy stuff, which is the dream is having cash when nobody else does. But three is I said, well, I could sell these here and I still have stuff that I'm buying here. So I'm going to take that money. It's not like I'm going to Vegas or I'm buying a private plane with it. I'm taking it right back in and putting it in the same one day. We're all going to get a private plane together and we're going to go somewhere. (laughs) Deal. We're going to reference this podcast. But if I'm selling one, I'm either 1031ing. So it's not like I necessarily am paying tax because I always have options or I'm paying the tax and I'm putting it right back in the market in the same thing and something that I feel like can grow quicker. So that's just the way we look at it. Yeah, I don't think there's anything. And look, here's the last reason why. And this is what not a lot of people talk about enough. When you hire a team and you have killers on your team, they want to make, they want to get paid. There's not a lot of people in the world we live in today that are like, yeah, I'll take equity that might take 30 years to pay out. Like, hell, it might compound and you might be rich as hell, but people have private school to pay for. They have cars they want to buy. They have trips they want to go on. Very few people in this world, it takes a really unique culture to sit here and say, hey, we're going to give you equity and promote, but we're never going to sell. And so here's the deal, dude. You're going to make a lot of money, but you're probably not going to see any of it for 10, 12, 15 years. It's just going to keep compounding. Don't get me wrong. It's going to be there, maybe. But when you start hiring people, a lot of people are motivated by skins on the wall. So if the decision was only, hey, should we sell because does Chris need money or not? we might have a different way of thinking about selling. But when you've built a really awesome team, you have to really keep them in mind. And selling and generating profits and wins and bonuses and things like that, keep people motivated, keep people hungry, keep people kind of living a better life. They can kind of grow up. And it's very hard to build a culture where you just like never sell and hold forever. What Warren's done at Berkshire is unbelievable, but let's not joke ourselves, he sells stuff too. We talk about he doesn't, but he does, maybe not as much. But that's the other part to how's your team incentivized and how do you incentivize somebody when you're never going to sell something and you're not very liquid and you can't generate that annual bonus that you want to give people? People will, people want to make money, especially your top producers. So they'll leave or they're just like that super long term thinker that they can stay in the moment and just wait, wait it out. So that's probably the other reason why we sell. We have a culture and a team that wants it, and that's why they come to work here. I mean, I I like that last one a lot. That's interesting. Because I'll just say like one more thing, not to cut you off. But in this business, in my business particularly, you can build like a family office style model, which is, hey, here's a couple partners. And the whole goal of the company is to like make them and their families rich. 
And under that model, you can hold shit as long as you want, but you're going to have a really tough time recruiting badass killers to come make you a bunch in your family, a bunch of money, not saying that's wrong on the flip side. You could have a company where everybody that stays here puts in the work and the time gets rich as we go. And that's a different model. That doesn't mean I'm not going to get, and I'm figuratively speaking, I can get rich in both scenarios, but they're two different ways to get there. And it's two different teams that get you there. I've chosen the team that says we want to scale. We want to grow. We want to do things. We want to put skins on the wall and hire better talent. Not, hey, let's just build something for, you know, Chris's, Chris and Chris's family. And it's a lot more fun, in my opinion, the other way. But that, that's just one opinion. So in a sale, how does a team member get, how does that work that, that you create like a, a team win out of an exit of a property? So do you know what a promote is? No, I don't. Okay. So this is why private equity, this is why the GPLP business is, is great. So we would do a deal and I would raise some money from you and I'd say, look, I'm the GP, you're the LP and I'm really dumbing it down here. But we'd say, and once we sell this property, you're going to get your preferred return, which might've been, you know, six, 7%. And then after I give you your original money back, plus your accrued interest of your preferred return, all remaining profits are going to be split 70% to you, 30% to me. So let's say we make a million bucks. You get 700 of it. I get 300 of it. Well, I might've only put 50,000 into the deal, but I'm still getting 30% of the profits. That's my juice for, you know, putting the deal together, working on it, blah, blah, blah. So of that promote, that doesn't all go to me. That's shared amongst the team. So our leadership team and critical members get a piece of that promote. So every time a deal sells, and a lot of our employees put no money into deals. We don't make them put money into deals, but they still get a piece of the carried interest which can be substantial. So that is cool. That's okay, how they do so it. So it's like, but with every deal you give team members, does every team member have the option? Like, Hey, we're doing have the option to what to put money into a deal. Yeah. Well, every team member, I won't go too much in the nuance. It's based on the level of that you are in the company or the tenure that you've been in the company. And then even within, so not everybody's there yet. But even within that, depending on where you are, there's limitations. So what we don't want is somebody, we don't want an employee that takes their life savings and like shows, shoves it into one deal. They just become, we want them focused on the company, not on that one deal. So they can put a percentage of their overall comp from the year before into deals. And again, the further up the company you move and the longer you've been here, the more that percentage grows. And then there's, you can get to a point where you can put as much as you would like, but you'd have to have been here for quite a while. And we would have to feel comfortable that you're not betting your life on like one or two deals in the company. I don't want that stress. They don't want that stress. We don't want people that are, that care more about one deal than another because they chose to put money in there. So there's a balance there. I think this is cool. We, we sort of, we didn't really name this part of the discussion, but this is the whole cultural side of what you're doing. And I think, I think it's cool. I think that's a Sweet way to. This is operations. Yeah, I mean for sure. Like I'm, I'm it's thinking a different about part this. of operations, but it's operations. Yeah, I'm thinking about this, and I'm, I'm. I'm kind of curious how like how the employees you have. What's the longevity like? You like you know, average person's been there ten years, or what's that look like? Does it help retention? Yeah. So think about this. So I think we're just because of like what I said we did in 2016, like we went through some turnover kind of becoming this new company and we've hired a lot of like the recruiting that we've done the last two years. I pinched myself that I get to work with these people. They're way smarter than I am. But to answer your question, I think some of our top tenured people now are hitting that six, seven year mark. And when they get these promotes, so what you can't do is come work at Fort get into the promote on 12 deals that we did that year and head out. And then you just get to keep that. And so they vest. So each promote vests over five years. So look, if we buy a deal and sell a deal in a year, you still get all of your promote. But if we own it for five, you get a fifth of it every year for five years. So when you're leaving here, if you're leaving on good standings and you're just taking another job or you're, you're moving to another city, whatever's vested has vested. And even though you're gone, when those properties sell one day or generate, we're still going to pay you long after you're gone. But 
people are always leaving something on the table when they leave. They're leaving whatever didn't best. And so there's always, so the longer you stay, the more you have to leave when, the more you're leaving on the table when you leave us. And look, that's no like game or gimmick to get people to stay. It's just, that's what it is. At the same time, we're very generous and give you promote. So it's both. The other thing I would say, since we're talking about incentives, and this is a a new kind of rollout that I didn't come up with, but I think it's genius and I tell everybody about it. A lot of times your big producers and earners will leave after a deal gets done. They'll get their bonus and then they're gone like the next week. They'll wait till that deal's closed and then they're gone. I don't hate them for it. I get it. That's show me the incentives and I'll show you the outcome. The incentive is I'm going to get paid a lot. And once I get paid, I'm out. Okay. So we change that up. So now what we do is your bonuses go into a pool. It's your pool. So let's just say you made a $20,000 bonus. You get 50% of your what's in your allotted amount at the end of every quarter. And so sometimes there's lots of people to get bonuses throughout the year. So that bonus is growing. It's not a one time of year bonus, but let's say I owe you, you know, 20 grand at the end of Q1, you can take 10 of it. Let's say by the end of Q2, you have not generated another bonus. Well, you can take now there's 10 left. You can take five. You are, you can never take your full bonus, but let's just say, Q1, you took 10 and then you generated another $20,000 bonus in Q2. So now you got 30 again, 10 from Q1 and the new 20. At the end of Q2, you can take 15. So it's like a rolling bonus. It's always there for you. You can get 50% of it every quarter, but you can't get it all at once and you ain't going to leave the next week. Like so many, that's what happens across, not just our company, everywhere. People wait till year end, they wait till this bonus and they're gone. No moss. We'll actually tell people, look, we're going to pay more bonuses than we have. You just can't take them all at once. You just get 50%. And anybody that really has a big issue with that isn't there for the long term. Because we're not, you get all the money. And, it's, and unless somebody said like, man, I just have to have this because I'm having a kid and blah, blah, blah. Like, who knows? Maybe we'll we'll have that conversation, but you can't really pick and choose how you bend the rules. you got to stay pretty current. And I would just say most people don't need it all right then. If somebody needs the whole bonus so bad right then, they're, they're either lying or they, they're making bad financial decisions. So it's there. We'll pay you more. You just can't take it all at once. I think it's genius. Yeah, that is. I'm, I'm into it. So how, how do they ever empty the pot? Like how does that ever get empty? Uh, if they leave on good, like if they were to leave on good, if you were to, if you were to work for me and be like, Hey, I've been here seven years and I'm moving to Denver with the family. Like we would not hold that back. Now, if you said, you know, Hey, I'm leaving to go take a job at a competitor. It's like, yeah, sorry. You're bonus where you are. Like you, your bonus ends. God forbid they leave on bad terms or they do something unethical. Then it's obvious they're not going to get it. Smart. But the it's truth honestly, is, the bonuses, yeah, I'm into it. <laughs> it it's a sense. it's a rolling bonus. It's a rolling bonus, and we but Brandon, which, you kind of have to do it. You kind of have to do it and give people more bonus too. Like there has it can't be like, hey, you're going to get the same bonus you would have. Now we're just not paying you as quickly. It's like, no, you're going to get more bonus each year. You just don't get it paid all at once, and it's smart and like. I'll say this, we'll never have anybody that gets that big lick bonus and is gone. Mm-hmm. You can get half of it and leave, but you can't get it all. Oh, that's cool. All right. Yeah, I'm into it. And, here, and, here, and here's the thing, and y'all will find this out as you continue to grow. Not everybody's built that wants to make a lot of money. There's a lot of people that work here that their ambitions are not that. They want to have a good life. They want to work with good people, but they want to go home and they want to be with their families and they don't care if they take over the world. But those aren't the people out finding deals and do those are people are wired totally different. They do want to take over the world. They want all the money. They want that's great. I want you to make all the money. I just don't want you to make it all and then leave every time you get a big lick for the next big lick somewhere else. We're not going to build that culture. And that's you see that rampant in every industry. Everybody investment banking, December bonus comes around. The streets are full of people looking for jobs in January. Mm-hmm. We ain't playing that game. How did you construct your current team? You have 27 people. How did you go from eight, four or five years ago and build it out? What model did you use for that? 
you'd have to do that podcast with my with my partner who's now CEO. So the short answer is I was partnered with a great guy that had been at a big company for a lot of his life. Very entrepreneurial. His story quickly is he had a child when he was 17, got married really early, was kind of forced into the company world because he had to take care of things. He did not have the luxury of being an entrepreneur early, but he was always built like one. So he came and it's easy for me to sit here today and tell you what we've done. I need to preface all this with it's been done because I put great people around me. So he was like, Hey, we got to have a culture and we got to have like a leadership team and we need to do retreats. And like, we got to manage people and like take care of people. And I was like, no, we just need to like run and like hire smart people and they'll take care of themselves. So the, the short answer to your question is I hired a really great operator that understood how to build teams, understood what people wanted, what incentivized people understood how to bonus people, understood how to give promotions and, and raises, how to title people within a company. And I learned from him and I let him create a lot of the structure. I was always great at recruiting. I still am. I can sell the vision and, and get somebody to bite, but they have to show up to a place that's very, that they want to work that you know is a good environment. And he has been the backbone of all of that. For me to take any of that credit would be very that just wouldn't be the truth. This is, this you this is like a deja vu of everything we're talking about. Wilson. Some people want to run and grow a company and some people want to be at home base and operate. And I don't want to be at home base and operate, but that's okay. That's okay because there's people that love doing that. That's the other thing you learn as an entrepreneur. Not everybody wants what you want, but people love things that you don't like doing. They thrive in them and they would be scared shitless trying to do your job as a visionary out there putting it all together. They want to be nowhere part of that. And I'm like, great, I'll do that. You do everything I don't want to be a part of. And we're both going to be happy at the end of the day. Yeah, I, I think that's awesome. I know our business really took off with specifically Brandon. Hey, Brandon. Hello. Thanks. <laughs> but just because it would, when I was recruiting for that position, I was like, all right, who is the literal opposite of me? Because I can go build a company, but I can, don't ask me to run it. Or I can go buy a company, but don't ask me to run it. Because like that sounds horrible. Yep. It sounds like the biggest pain in the yeah. butt ever. But I would love to go buy one. <laughs> well, and that got me depressed for a long time. I was like, why don't I like doing these things? Like I was searching. I felt less than. Yeah. Yes. Because as an entrepreneur, you're like, well, shit, if I can't do this, I'm going to try even harder to do it. And the answer is don't do that. You're going to piss a lot of people off, burn a lot of people out create fires that don't need to be created. And then you have someone like Brandon, maybe who you're kind of referencing as the operator. He loves doing that. Let him operate. Let him do that and stay out of his way. Like what we were talking about earlier, you know, you take a company like, I don't know, Apple, or most of the stuff that goes on in a company is not like this, you know, crazy, exciting shit going on every day. Like we see the iPhone and that looks cool, but like there's a lot of people on accounting and there's a lot of people like trying to figure out logistics and supply chain. Like it all ends up in an iPhone. But if you ask somebody their day-to-day -day job, they have like never even seen the iPhone factory. They just are making sure that we're shipping to China for a quarter less than we were the year before. So much of what happens as company grows have has nothing to do with like the exciting, cool stuff that the customer ultimately ends up with. And so that's where a lot of founder entrepreneurs get burnt out because they're like, this isn't exciting. Like building an accounting department is just not that exciting. Well, guess what? It is for people in accounting and it is for operators. And so you're not wrong because it doesn't excite you and they're not right because it excites them. You know what I mean? So much of a big business and a growing business is these mundane day-to-day -day processes that you just try and get a little bit better at each day. And for a lot of founder, exciting, visionary people, that's not exciting. And that's why they're terrible operators. Yeah. I mean, I completely agree. And I, I'm a terrible operator. <laughs> <laughs> I am too. I am too. We're in the terrible operator club. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh, man. So if somebody wanted to start off today and they're like, man, Chris Powers is sweet. Like, how do I be Chris Powers in 15 years? Where do they start? Oh, well, they have to be 19 couple places. I'm like, surround yourself with just like unbelievable people. Don't be afraid to ask for help or ask questions. 
Like that is something that's been so natural to me my whole life is like, why would I go through the brain damage of figuring this out when I can go to the guy that's been doing it 20 years and he can help me like skip so much. The truth is when you're young and you haven't done a whole lot yet, everybody wants to help you. So take advantage of that time. The more successful you become, not that people don't want to help you, but you actually become the person that's helping somebody else. The dynamic changes. And I'll just be frank. Not a lot of people are looking to help Elon Musk out, like mentor him. Mm-hmm. They look at him as competition. They're fearful of him. They're, that's why they say it's lonely at the top. It's not because they're rich and they, it's really because there's less people you can relate to the more successful you become. Michael Jordan, there's only one Michael Jordan. There's not a lot of people he can go relate to and tell his frustrations and problems and they'll get it. That's maybe Kobe Bryant. That's maybe LeBron James. There's maybe a handful of people on earth that truly would ever understand what Michael Jordan's going through. Tiger Woods, somebody like that. So take advantage while you're young because there's lots of people in your boat. But as you become more successful, that boat gets a little bit smaller. So that's one thing. Two, like, again, I got started in 04. We're now in 2021. Like, there's never been a better time to start a business. It's very cheap. There's very little risk that you're putting on the table relative to what it would have taken 20 years ago to build a business. I don't know. Like, I don't have great answers. I think, it, I think the problem is there is no great answer. It's like, just just go do it. Like, what's the worst that's going to happen? You fail? Yeah. Yeah. I was and that's not that all that bad. Failure, you learn a lot of stuff from failing. And probably most of it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, you don't learn from all your wins. You learn from like the days that you leave the office wanting to pull your hair out. And then like you reflect on it a month later and you're like, okay, I get why that happened. And I'm not going to do that again. Yeah. I think one of the coolest things about your story, and, and I, I think it, I don't think we touched it specifically, but the, or no, we did. How the mentor was like right one step ahead of you. So I, I was given a yeah. chance to, I was given a chance to talk to this guy who's worth like 10 or 15 billion or something like that. And it was cool. It was a cool conversation. And, but I think it was, a. I was young, like maybe 25 or 26. Yeah. And I went into that conversation like, this is going to change my, you know, he's going to give me some crazy ass nonsense. He's going to be, he's going to become a mentor or whatever. I don't even remember all the things I thought, but then I had this conversation and I walked away from it sort of disappointed because like that he was an ocean apart from me. Like he was, he was on the moon. So I almost got nothing out of that conversation because our problems were so completely unrelatable that any wisdom that he had to share with me, it would probably be super valuable in 15 years, 20 years when that gap is closed or not closed, but closer. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, having it at 25, trying to get started and doing like having two deals under my belt or something like that, it was just, it was, it was just totally different. So I, I think just in the asking questions, I think knowing who to ask, like going straight to someone who's 15 steps ahead of you doesn't maybe help you as much as the guy one or two. Yeah, you nailed it. It's two sets of answers. A 50, $15 billion guy, there's a lot of wisdom he can give you, but it's, it's not the stuff that you can take like back tomorrow. And like, he's not feeling those pains. He can set you off in the right direction and kind of give you, here's some landmines. Don't, don't go in these directions. But like you said, hiring the guy that's five years in front of you or, or mentoring from the guy that's, that's now bought 20 businesses and maybe you're at three, four, whatever, he's got a lot more that you can kind of take back and go on. You just kind of know, you just got to have a filter for what you're like, what the answer needs to be. You, you nailed it. Yeah. Awesome. Well, Chris, this was awesome. If people want to catch up with you, where can they find you? Oh, this was awesome. I really appreciate you guys having me on. You can find me on Twitter at Fort Worth Chris, or you can follow me on my podcast, the Fort Podcast with Chris Powers, or go to our website, fortcapitallp.com. All right, sweet. All right, thanks, Chris. Appreciate it. Thank you. 